Marcus Paul, almost a public figure. Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the mornings, right across Australia. On the iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio apps. The biggest issues. The biggest guess. Marcus Paul in the morning starts now. Well, good morning and welcome to a brand new week. It is the 6th day of June, Marcus Paul in the morning. Um, Still recovering from a a bit of a nasty bout of the flu, so if I'm a little nasally this morning, I do apologise. Great to have your company here on Starter FM on the iHeartRadio platform right around Australia. Of course, on TuneIn, and maybe you're listening to the podcast, The Prawncast. You can be a part of everything we do via our socials. You can follow us, please. Marcus Paul in the morning on Facebook. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, uh, The Prawncast, of course. You can download that and share that on your socials. And we're also even on Instagram and Twitter. (laughs) Anything I've missed there? (laughs) Uh, All right. Now, on the show this morning, Peter Dutton, he's announced his new shadow cabinet. Um, Did I say cabinet? Shadow ministry, you know what I mean. Um, Anyway, it includes a a number of new faces, and out of the 24 spots for the Liberals and Nationals, 10 will be women. They're learning the lesson. Um, Now, some fresh faces, and some who look to be perfectly honest, aren't going to get a run because of the, well, the recent, so far as the... LNP are concerned, the coalition, the diabolical showing at the polls. Um, Some have fallen on their swords, including Alex Hawke, the former immigration minister. I'll talk about that new uh, new, uh, opposition ministry. I keep wanting to call it cabinet. That's coming up in New South Wales. A a bit of a band-aid solution is what it's being called by the opposition, but at least it's something. A uh, a billion-dollar-plus investment into ambulance services across the state of New South Wales. So that's one positive I'll talk about. Uh, The negative, of course, unfortunately, is the fact the state of rural health continues to be down the dunny. Uh, Look, if you're a woman and you're having a baby and you live anywhere around Gunnedah, you can't have one on the weekend, okay? I'll explain why a little later in the uh, the program. Very disturbing story on rural health in New South Wales that I'll get to. Um, now, Hoss, uh, speaking of um, New South Wales, we had a, uh, a student who was uh, vaping in a toilet in a, a school. I think it was up in the Blue Mountains. Anyway, they collapsed had some sort of seizure. So there are more calls now for parents to take greater responsibility and get their kids off the nasty habit of vaping. I'll talk about that story for you as well. Um, As well as uh, teacher shortages, there are uh, discussions around using some sort of fly-in, fly-out kind of teacher exchange operation. I, I don't know how this thing would work and Prue Carr, the state opposition uh, minister in relation to education, basically said it's like putting a band-aid on a broken arm. 
when it comes to the issue of teacher shortages, but I'll, I'll talk about that story as well. And much, much more. Thank you uh, for, for joining us this morning. We'll update you on the latest news, thanks to Air News. Play some great tunes for you on this Monday. It is the sixth day of June. Right around Australia, this is Marcus Paul in the morning. Okay, let's get into it on this Monday morning. It is the sixth day of June. Marcus Paul in the morning. Great to have your company. Well, Federal Opposition Leader Peter Dutton unveiled his new shadow ministry yesterday, uh, demoting two of former Prime Minister Scott Morrison's lieutenants from prominent roles in the New Look Coalition lineup. Uh, Alex Hawke was one of those, and there's no surprise there, the so-called factional warlord. I'll get to him in a moment. Now, Peter Dutton says there are 10 women in his shadow cabinet, made up of 24 members. He said yesterday, what you're seeing in this lineup is some fresh faces. We have an incredible depth of talent, not just on the front bench, but also on the back bench as well. He said he was cognizant of trying to bring people through for an opportunity. Deputy Liberal Leader Susan Lee will take on the shadow industry portfolio, as well as becoming the opposition spokesperson for women. Former Energy Minister Angus Taylor, he'll hold the Shadow Treasury portfolio, while former Cabinet Minister Alan Tudge will return as a Shadow Education Minister. We know Mr Tudge had served as the Education Minister of Australia under former PM Scott Morrison before he quote, stepped aside, pending the outcome of an investigation into his conduct during an affair with a staffer. WA Liberal Andrew Hastie, who's a former SAS captain, well, he will become the Shadow Defence Minister, while Sky favourite Jane Hume becomes Shadow Finance Minister. Now, Scott Morrison allies Robert uh, Stuart Robert and Alex Hawke. They've both been demoted as a part of Mr Dutton's front bench. Uh, Mr Robert will become the Shadow Assistant Treasurer after serving as Employment Minister while, of course, the Libs were in government, while Mr Hawke, well, he's basically been shown the door. He has not been awarded any Shadow Ministry role. Now, Mr Hawke was embroiled in a bitter factional dispute over pre-selections for Liberal candidates in key New South Wales seats, facing scathing criticism for harming the party's fortunes at the May 21 election. He had served as Immigration Minister in the previous government. Meanwhile, the Nationals have secured six Shadow Cabinet positions as the junior coalition partner, with Nationals leader David Littleproud staying in the agriculture portfolio, while his deputy, Perrin Davey, will serve as the Shadow Minister for Water. Former leaders, uh, national leaders that is, Barnaby Joyce and Michael McCormick remain on the front bench. Mr Joyce holding the Shadow Veterans Affairs portfolio, while Mr McCormick will be the opposition spokesperson for international development and the Pacific. The Shadow Ministry team that I bring forward for the National Party is about renewal and generational change, said Mr Littleproud. It's about making sure we draw on those that have the experience to bring the harmony and peace within our party room and bring the next generation through. Now, the Nationals leader was crowing about the party taking back responsibilities for trade, an area it, it has long coveted, with Lismore-based MP Kevin Hogan becoming the opposition spokesman in that area of trade. 
Former Foreign Minister Maurice Payne had asked Mr Dutton not to be a member of Shadow Cabinet, but he says he has convinced her to hold on to the role of Shadow Cabinet Secretary. Meanwhile, New South Wales Liberal MP Julian Lisa becomes the Shadow Attorney General and Shadow Minister for Indigenous Australians, while Victorian Senator and former journalist Sarah Henderson takes on responsibilities as the Shadow Communications Minister. Michaelia Cash, the former Attorney General, moves into the employment and industrial relations space, while South Australia's Anne Rustin takes on health and aged care. Senator Rustin had, of course, been Scott Morrison's pick for the new Health Minister, had the Coalition have won the election back on May the 21st. Queensland MP Ted O'Brien will be the new Shadow Energy Minister, who will be prosecuting the opposition's case as the new government grapples with an ongoing gas crisis. While finally, Tasmania's Jonathan Junior, he's a new name, he's moved up the coalition pecking order as Shadow Environment Minister, while former Trade Minister Dan Tian moves into immigration. So there it is. Many of you so far commenting on the new Dutton and, uh, of course, little proud opposition front bench. What do you make of it? Let us know on the Facebook page. Marcus Paul in the morning. All right, welcome back. Monday morning, Marcus Paul in the morning, live around Australia on the iHeartRadio platform, starterfm.com.au. Of course, we have a YouTube channel and you can follow us on Facebook, Marcus Paul in the morning. I've long talked about the teacher shortage in the state of New South Wales. And yesterday I noticed that the government, the Perite government, is now considering using fly-in, fly-out teachers to help solve the ongoing staff shortages. The opposition, though, claims this is simply a band-aid solution. Teacher shortages are growing across the state of New South Wales as many staff are furloughed due to COVID-19 and the flu. Now, the government is considering introducing FIFO teachers who have flown from regional communities to provide casual classroom relief to fix the shortages. The New South Wales Department of Education's Deputy Secretary of School Performance, Murat Dizdar, said other government departments had similar arrangements already in place. Dizdar said yesterday, I know that in the health profession, for example, we've seen that model work quite successfully. So it is one we should look at and consider. Armadale Teachers Association President Michael Skiffer, well, he questions where the FIFO teachers would come from as the shortages are in fact statewide. Skiffer said yesterday, I think it's more about the state government trying to distract from the real issues. If you're going to FIFO, where there are teachers, where are the teachers coming from? He said, we have shortages right across New South Wales. If you're going to have fly-in teachers, it means another school may well be missing out. Now, Mr Skipper, who was a regional teacher himself, said the staff shortages are the worst he's seen in his 20-year career. The Labor Party, the state opposition, is calling on the government to introduce long-term solutions to fix chronic teacher shortages. The New South Wales Shadow Minister for Education, Prue Carr, said yesterday the FIFO solution is like putting a Band-Aid on a broken leg. 
Miss Carr said yesterday the teacher shortage is the product of 11 years of failure by the New South Wales Liberal National Government to properly attract and retain quality teachers in New South Wales schools. She went on to say we know the most valuable thing for our children's education is having a qualified teacher in front of them, but too many students are missing out on that under this government. Teachers in the state have walked off the job twice, of course, in the past six months, as they demand better pay and working conditions. The headaches continue for New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet. Marcus Paul in the morning. OK, Marcus Paul in the morning on this Monday. Just sticking with some issues around schools, and I've long been talking about teen vaping. Well, we had an incident in the last week in a, another New South Wales school that saw a student collapse in a toilet as a side effect of vaping, and it's prompted a fresh wave of warnings for parents. A Blue Mountain student was hospitalised after suffering a seizure as a result of vaping in school toilets. Blue Mountain's grammar school admin wrote to parents to warn about the incident and ask them to speak to their children. Now, the school, in its newsletter, said vaping had become a growing problem among students and they were seeking to educate them about the dangers. The letter to parents writes, I write to our whole community today in order to highlight the extraordinary dangers of vaping and to urge parents to discuss them with your children. Last week, an otherwise perfectly healthy senior student collapsed in the toilets, experienced an extended seizure and was taken to hospital by ambulance after using a vape. Medical evidence suggests that this seizure was caused by a massive dose of nicotine. While I am profoundly grateful to say that the student has now recovered, the risk of head injury or hypoxia-induced brain damage are terrible to contemplate. Now, in a recent newsletter, the school said that e-cigarettes have become a problem for some students who were using the toilets to vape. It asked parents to speak to their kids about how detrimental it was to their health. In another newsletter, the school's head of senior school, Owen Laffin, warned of the serious threat vapes or electronic cigarettes pose to young people. Uh, he wrote, While we have been aware of this issue for quite some time and have been taking steps to manage its impact within our school community, the degree of harm this behaviour may cause our young people has become more apparent in recent days. Well, what do you make of it? Um, vaping. Do you vape? And if you do, do you actually use the ones with nicotine? Earlier this year, of course, New South Wales launched a campaign to warn of the serious health consequences of vaping, including nicotine addiction and that they can contain harmful chemicals. A New South Wales population health survey found that more than one in 10 people aged between 16 and 24 years old said they vaped in 2021 double the rate of the year before. So there's no doubt vaping is becoming increasingly popular. According to the survey, the rate of daily smokers among residents aged over 16 was 9.2% in 2020 and dropped to 8.2% in the space of a year. But the survey supported growing concerns young people were instead taking up e-cigarettes. Dr. Kerry Chan from New South Wales Health, she's the 
Chief Health Officer, of course. She said it's a worrying trend for our young people because vapes can contain many harmful chemicals and toxins, even if they are nicotine-free. Back in 2019, the US Federal Drug Administration warned of reports of young people suffering seizures as a result of using e-cigarettes. That same year, the FDA investigated 127 cases of people suffering seizures after vaping, many of them young people. The Federal Drug Administration said that seizures and convulsions were a side effect of nicotine toxicity. Vaping. Is it a, well, is it another problem that will replace smoking traditional nicotine cigarettes? Let me know, Marcus. Call in the morning. Marcus Paul in the morning, great to have you company. Please subscribe to our brand new YouTube channel if you wouldn't mind and keep following us on social media, Facebook, Instagram. We are live around Australia on the iHeartRadio platform. Tune in and of course on starterfm.com.au. Yeah, there's definitely been a, a bit of a, an educational theme to this morning's program so far. And I noticed yesterday the brand new Federal Education Minister, Jason Clare, has vowed that postcodes should not determine school and university opportunities in a major show of support for Western Sydney families. Yeah, well, he did. Western Sydney students must have the same access to university and skills training as their inner-city peers. According to Australia's new education minister, it was a pledge to ensure that postcode doesn't determine opportunity. So in a major show of support for the fast-growing region of Sydney's West, Jason Clare, whose own electorate of Blacksland takes in Bankstown, Auburn, South Granville, Chester Hill and Milpera, said he wants to make sure that all kids in Western Sydney can make the big jump from high school to university if they want. Mr Clare said the data shows that the further you live away from a capital city, the more you see a drop in the number of people that actually go on to higher education or even complete high school. He spoke yesterday to the Sunday Telegraph, Mr Clare, saying he welcomed a, a new University of Western Sydney campus being built in Bankstown and he supported ensuring there was enough local study places to keep up with demand. He said the fact is that opportunity still depends a lot on where you live on how much your parents earn, whether you're Indigenous or non-Indigenous, and what I want to do in this job is to make a meaningful difference. He went on to say, I want to take us one step closer to the day when we can truly say that postcode doesn't determine opportunity here in Australia. Now, Mr Clare also ruled out changes to the new national curriculum, which as we know was finally signed off by all states and territories in April, and he said he focused on helping teachers and schools getting on with implementing it. He wasn't interested in having a fight about it, he said. He said, I'm interested in making sure that our kids get the best education possible. Well, two days after being sworn in as Education Minister, Mr Clare visited Cabramatta Public School, which he attended as a child to reflect on his own school journey. It seemed like the perfect place to start, he said. I'm the first person in my family to go to university. I'm the first person in my family to finish high school. For my mum and dad, working class kids growing up in Western Sydney in the late 1960s, they didn't even dream that they could go to university. 
While Mr Clare said he was also eager to work with his state and territory counterparts to ensure the generation of school children who had their education disrupted by the pandemic were not disadvantaged long term. He said that COVID has had a massive impact on Australian kids and he said the mental health impact of the lockdowns, particularly on teenagers, can't be underestimated. He said that is why we made a commitment during the election campaign to invest in more counsellors, psychologists and investing in things like school camps to help tackle some of those issues. All right, Marcus Paul in the morning. Okay, welcome back. Marcus Paul in the morning on this Monday. We spoke last week about the issue of ambulance ramping uh, right across Australia, but in particular in New South Wales. Well, I noticed yesterday the state government, the Dominic Perrottet government, announced a major boost to that state's AMBO workforce following years of industrial action. New South Wales Ambulance will recruit 2,128 new staff and also open 30 more stations across the state under a new investment worth $1.76 billion. Uh, the Premier said the record investment will ensure that New South Wales has the best health care in the country. Mr Perrottet said yesterday the investment will help increase capacity both in terms of available paramedics to respond to patients and available staff to help answer the record volume of calls. Ambulance services across Australia are experiencing unprecedented demand, but this funding will ensure New South Wales is well-placed for the challenges ahead, according to the Premier. The funding, spaced over a four-year period, will provide the state with 1,858 extra paramedics, 210 ambulance support staff and 52 nurses and eight doctors. Health Services Union paramedics are celebrating the historic win after having fought for the extra positions for the past five years. The HSU New South Wales Secretary Gerard Hayes said paramedics would now continue to campaign for decent wages that reflected the contribution and professionalism of paramedics. Mr Hayes said yesterday, our paramedics have been consistently under-resourced and it has impacted the community. For too long, paramedics have worked themselves to the bone to protect our community. This announcement will allow them to deliver even better care to the community while also protecting their own health and well-being. The 30 new ambulance stations will be set up at a number of places, including Warilla down on the uh, down in the Illawarra, Kingcumba, uh, Lizaro and Gateshead, Swansea up on the central coast, Cherrybrook in Sydney's northwest, Raby and Norellan in, uh, in the MacArthur area, so all those areas in the coming year, with 22 more stations to come over the following three years. Marcus Paul in the morning. All right, welcome back. Marcus Paul in the morning, live around Australia here on Starter FM, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, and, of course, on the Prawncast, the podcast, if you're listening to us there. G'day. I wouldn't mind if you could uh, give our podcast a bit of a push on your social media. Just share it. Well, the state government in New South Wales will continue to acquire homes for the Beaches Link, despite the mega project being put on ice 
We talked about this last week. Infrastructure New South Wales, of course, in their recommendation, said that this was a project that would, well, unfortunately, need to be put on the back burner because of cost blowouts, etc. But homeowners along the stretch of Dudley Street at Balgala will be able to voluntarily sell their properties to the government, even though the project was among those set to be shelved as ballooning construction costs and labour shortfalls heap pressure on developments. Despite the government being set to take advice, in an Infrastructure New South Wales report last week, which suggested the beaches link be delayed amid difficult financial headwinds, homes will still be snatched up in anticipation of the project one day going ahead. Now, a Transport for New South Wales spokesman confirmed homes would be acquired if owners wanted to sell, although the government had paused plans to compulsorily acquire them. Uh, The government spokesperson said the New South Wales government remains committed to the Beaches Link project, which will be a vital connection for our growing city. Transport for New South Wales acknowledges that property acquisition can be stressful and we will continue to engage with property owners through dedicated personal managers as our planning continues. Owners will be provided with more time if that's what they require. Alternatively, properties can still be purchased from owners who from owners who do wish to sell right now. Well, so far 21 out of 35 residential properties have been acquired, all of these completed on a voluntary basis according to the government. But the opposition Labor's road spokesman John Graham said it was, quote, grossly irresponsible for the government to acquire land for the project without a time frame, while reaffirming his party would scrap the project if it wins next year's election. A delay equals a cancellation, let's be clear, is what he said. He went on to say that it is grossly irresponsible to be offering voluntary land acquisitions on a project with no timeline. Equally, there is an election in 10 months' time. If Labor wins, we have said we would scrap the project. The business case barely stacks up and there is more need for infrastructure in Western Sydney. Yeah, all right, but what do you make of that? I mean, if... People on the uh, the northern beaches in that corridor, if they voluntarily sell their properties right now to the state government, right, and they move out and move on, and this thing doesn't go ahead, well, are they going to miss out in the future if the government, well, eventually, if it's a Labor government, what will they do? They won't keep the properties, they'll resell them. I don't know. Uh, maybe they got out at the right time. Infrastructure Minister Rob Stokes last week signalled acquisition would continue on dozens of homes in preparation for the day when the link is built. Yes, he said, we will continue to work with those homeowners in relation to those acquisitions because we need to get on with this project. He conceded though, because of the headwinds we're facing, the beaches link needs to be developed over time. Larissa Penn, who is a spokeswoman for the Stop the Tunnels campaign, which opposes the Western Harbour Tunnel project linked to the beaches proposal, said the community wanted more details over the development's future. She said, when you look at people's homes being acquired for a project that's tenuous at best, the community wants surety, but they also want to have evidence of the benefits of these projects that are going ahead.
Maybe you'd care to comment. You can do so on our Facebook page, Marcus Paul in the Morning. Alrighty, welcome back. Marcus Paul in the Morning. Uh, one of the most disturbing environmental stories of the past, I don't know, uh, few years has been the fact that, can you believe it? One of Australia's most beloved icons, the koala, may well be endangered. Yeah. Well, the Queensland government, I read yesterday, has allocated almost $40 million to protect native animals across that state, with most sped on koalas. Treasurer Cameron Dick said almost $25 million would be dedicated to protecting and restoring the koala population in the southeast. Climate change, land clearing and disease, as we know, are impacting koala populations in eastern states. So the Queensland government is spending an extra 25 mil on koala conservation. It's part of a broader package to protect native animals across the state. Now, Mr Dick said yesterday, we have never had a plan as extensive as our protection plan for koalas in the southeast of Queensland, where, of course, our state's largest koala population is. Koalas were declared endangered in Queensland, New South Wales and the ACT by the federal government earlier this year after population losses due to climate change, land clearing and disease. And of course, we're, we forget to mention uh, the bushfires. Environment Minister Megan Scanlon said the funding, this is in Queensland, said the funding would expand the state's koala habitat restoration program, help reduce the threat to koalas in hotspots, support the development of a koala sighting app for communities to collect population data, invest in ongoing scientific research and support on-ground conservation projects. But the Australian Koala Foundation's Deborah Tabbitt said the new funding was, quote, a band-aid solution that did not address the real reason the koalas were endangered. She said, if you don't stop the trees coming down, our koalas are doomed. Now, Miss Tabbitt said the southeast Queensland area had lost almost 50,000 koalas over the past 25 years. She said the southeast Queensland koalas could have been saved if everyone had done this right 20 years ago, and that is not cut trees down. The Australian Koala Foundation is asking the state government to implement a Koala Protection Act, which would legislate for the protection of koala habitats. Okay, well... Diseases are also a problem that threaten koala populations, not only in Queensland, but across Australia. Around $2 million of the new funding in Queensland will be divided between Corumban Wildlife Hospital, Australia Zoo Wildlife Hospital and the RSPCA Queensland Wildlife Hospital. Cameron Dick said the Corumban Wildlife Hospital, which cared for more than 500 koalas yearly, had contributed significantly to helping fight diseases that were becoming endemic in the koala population. We know how damaging chlamydia can be to koala populations, and this wildlife hospital is doing the nation's leading work in establishing a viable vaccine for chlamydia. If we can solve that problem, that could have a very significant benefit in restoring, protecting and increasing the koala population in Queensland. Corumban Wildlife Hospital Chief Veterinarian Dr Michael Pine said the funding was a step in the right direction. 
He said we are treating over 14,000 native wildlife cases a year and releasing them back into the wild. So, this funding makes such a difference to us to be able to provide that service and look after our native wildlife. Well, see, it's not just koalas, but there are thousands of species that are threatened, and the Queensland Treasurer says his state has a special responsibility to protect native wildlife, as more than 85% of Australia's mammals, 72% of native birds and more than 50% of native reptiles and frogs live in the state of Queensland. Mr Dick said, Queensland is a very special place because it is home to thousands of native animal species and other wildlife species. Unfortunately, there are currently 1,026 species, that is 243 animals and 783 plants, listed as threatened under the Queensland Nature Conservation Act. So around $15 million dollars will be used toward the state's threatened species program, focusing on recovery strategies, policy initiatives and threatened species assessments. The Queensland Government said it will provide additional support to Indigenous land and sea rangers, community groups, non-government organisations, land managers and the research community. And not a moment before time. Marcus Paul in the morning. Okay, Marcus Paul in the morning on this Monday. Great to have you company. Look, as you know, uh, my uh, followers and listeners for quite some time would know I used to speak quite regularly with uh, on regional issues, particularly in New South Wales, with now independent MP and, uh, uh, of course, former MP from the Shooters, Farmers and Fishers, Helen Dalton. She's now an, uh, an independent, and I think that's good. Anyway, um, Helen and I you would speak continuously till we were blue in the face on and off air about the, the, the terrible state of health in rural New South Wales. Well, and quite often she'd mention um, this area that I'm about to bring up and finally uh, some of the mainstream are catching up with this. Gunnedah, pregnant women in the town of Gunnedah are encouraged to give birth midweek. Why? Well, there's no bloody weekend doctors at a hospital. Which, by the way, (laughs) is about to undergo a $53 million upgrade. It'll be a ghost hospital. No point in having shiny new hospital wards with no doctors. The farcical state of the New South Wales rural health system has been exposed by a bush town where women are told to schedule a midweek caesarean birth because of the risk there will be no doctors at its public hospital on weekends. Gunnedah Hospital is slated for a $53 million upgrade, but has no permanent doctors. There's also a shortage of fly-in locums, which leaves the hospital doctorless. We've had no doctor on several occasions, according to Gunnedah Community Roundtable representative Kate McGrath. She said over the weekend, essentially, we are dependent on locums in the emergency departments and VMOs, that is, visiting medical officers for the wards, and locums are in high demand. So there we have been, uh, so there have been several occasions where we have not had any doctors at all. 
Miss McGrath said pregnant women were being scheduled for seizures during the week by the town's few GPs to avoid the risk of labour or complications on the weekends where there may not be a doctor in town, or certainly at the hospital. Miss McGrath said if they have any kind of risk, even if you're a little bit overweight, Women are being scheduled for caesarean sections during the week because the town's GPs are not willing to take the chance of them going into labour over the weekend and something going wrong. If there's any risk, they are mitigating that with caesarean sections. If you're going to have a baby, you need to do it Monday to Friday. And that's horrifying. Ms McGrath said the $53 million upgrade to Gunnedah Hospital would be useless without fixing the doctor shortage. She's absolutely right. I mean, these ghost hospitals are something that, of course, I've spoken about previously with Helen Dalton. It's absolute nonsense. It's almost laughable. We've put it to Kevin Anderson, the member for Tamworth. How do you plan to staff the hospital? And he has said that if you build it, they will come. Really? Well, I don't know if that's particularly true. There are places like parks where they have upgraded facilities and have these beautiful shining surgical theatres and maternity wards they haven't used because they can't staff them. There's no plan there, just wishful thinking. Ashley Sheedy, who's a mother of two from Canada, was induced midweek to have her son last year to avoid labour over the weekend. She said yesterday, I was told I had to be induced if I wanted to give birth in Canada because there were no doctors after 5pm and no doctors on the weekend. It was awful. The anxiety, so I was induced on a Wednesday. There is a lot of induction and caesareans here. Hmm. The town's GPs, which are on call, have had trouble attracting more doctors to their surgery due to the burden created by no doctor at the hospital. It's the latest in the crisis that has seen the state lose 600 rural and remote GPs in the past decade. The multi-million dollar Gunnedah upgrade is a repeat of the $72 million upgrade of the Parks Maternity Unit that was suspended in 2019 because the unit could not be staffed. Parks Mayor Ken Keith said his own granddaughter Libby was almost born on the side of the road as her mum had been forced to travel to Forbes, then Orange Hospitals. It is not good enough. Millions have been spent, but there's not enough doctors in our bush. The recent New South Wales parliamentary inquiry into health outcomes and access to health and hospital services in rural, regional and remote New South Wales found that rural, regional and remote patients have significantly poorer health outcomes, greater incidence of chronic disease and greater premature deaths when compared to their counterparts in metropolitan areas and that they also have inferior access to health and hospital services. Millions of dollars have been channelled into addressing the doctor shortage in rural New South Wales for more than three decades, but the problem only seems to be getting worse. Now, rural doctors are calling for an expansion of the two-year registrar training to be expanded with a compulsory year spent in rural practice for new doctors. Well, something has to... Uh, something has to uh, change. Rural doctors 
alerted New South Wales Health 35 years ago that a crisis was looming as rural generalists, those doctors who can do anaesthetics and obstetrics as well as general practice, face retirement. But dozens of rural hospitals remain unstaffed by a single doctor. According to one assessment, the state had lost 600 rural and remote GPs in the past decade alone. The taxpayer-funded bonded medical places scheme ran between 20, uh, 2004 and 2019. It was a scholarship to train doctors who would then work in rural communities as part of their return to service obligation. Rural generalists Dr Aniello Inanuzi from Coonabarabran said the scheme had not worked. The good doctor said it's too easy to rot, too easy to walk away. And what happened to all these millions spent on all these clever people making policies and setting up agencies? Well, as I say, something needs to change. Marcus Paul in the morning. All right, well, uh, that'll do for today's program. Thank you for your company here on Starter FM, the iHeartRadio platform. And if you're listening to the Prawncast, do us a solid. Give it a bit of a share on your social media. Um, Hopefully, uh, I'll be feeling a little better tomorrow and we'll get into some more issues. If you care to comment on any of the stories that we brought up this morning, particularly the rural health stories, the AMBO stories, whatever it is, or the education stories... I would love to hear from you. You can send me a message uh, via Messenger on our Facebook page. You can do it that way, of course. Or you may want to send me an email. Marcus.Paul at starterfm.com.au Enjoy the rest of today. We'll be back tomorrow between 7 and 9, Australian Eastern Standard Time on Starter FM, of course, and back on the Prawncast as well. Catch you tomorrow. Bye for now. All right. All right.